And we're going to be looking at a sizable portion of Luke 15. We want everybody to be able to follow along so the fellows have some Bibles. They're going to make their way back down the aisle, get their attention. If you need a copy of the scriptures as we look at Luke 15 together. If you were asked to say when Christmas started, most of us would understandably say that it began 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. Or if we were asked to read the Christmas story, we might turn to Matthew, the very first book in your New Testament, and the very first chapter of that first book, Matthew 1, that tells us the story of the birth of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Or Luke chapter 2, likewise. But the truth of the matter is that Christmas goes back much further than 2,000 years ago. And the reason for which we have Christmas at all goes back much further than 2,000 years ago. As a matter of fact, it goes into eternity past. Before there was anyone or anything besides God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Before they had created anything, Christmas was decided upon. Did you know that? The Bible says, The faith of God's elect is a faith and knowledge Resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised, notice when, before the beginning of time. The passage is saying that there are going to be people who are going to come to God believing. That's the word faith. They're going to believe who Christ is and what Christ did. But that determination that there would be people to do that was made before time began. And it's accompanied, according to that verse, with a promise, a promise made before time began. A promise that certain people would come to faith in Christ Jesus. And the question then is this, to whom was that promise made? If there was no one else around then to whom possibly could this promise of those who would come to faith in Christ Jesus have been made in eternity past? It's not the angels. It's my understanding of Scripture. The angels had not been created as yet anyway. And so there's just God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. The Bible gives us The answer to that question, to whom was this promise of those who would come to faith in Christ Jesus made? 2 Timothy chapter 1 tells us God has saved us and he has called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And this grace was given us, now notice, in Christ Jesus, same phrase, before the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time, there was a promise made from the Father to the Son that the Son would be given a people, a people for His very own who would bring praise to His name throughout eternity. And God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit conspired together to plan the events 
of history, including the events of 2,000 years ago that we celebrate during this week that we call Christmas. Love gives. And the Father determined at a moment in eternity past, if we can speak that way, to express His perfect love for the Son. And the way He determined to express that was to give to the Son a redeemed humanity as a love gift. A redeemed humanity whose purpose would be forever and ever, throughout the eons of eternity, to praise and glorify the Son and to serve Him perfectly. That was the Father's love gift. He wanted to give a redeemed humanity. Angels wouldn't suffice and they weren't around at the time the promise was made anyway. And they wouldn't suffice because there were characteristics of the Son for which they could never praise Him because they had never, these angels had never fallen and never been redeemed. And because it's in the nature of God to be gracious, He was manifest that grace and be exalted for it forever and ever and ever. Now just pause and wonder, friends, that if you've come to faith in Christ Jesus, you are part of that promise made by the Father to the Son in eternity past. And it means that your salvation then does not rest upon you and your goodness, me and my goodness, but on the promise of God who cannot lie. And Jesus therefore said in John chapter 6, All who the Father gives to me shall come to me, and I will lose none of them. And that's what Christmas is about. God came on a mission. God came on a mission that God himself commissioned. And that's why I've titled our message, God is on a mission from, but that mission God is on a mission from is from God Himself. And that's why I've had you turn to Luke chapter 15. Because we have Christmas because God is on a mission. And in Luke 15, Jesus gives three parables. We're going to focus in on one of those three parables to show that God is relentless in the pursuit of His mission. I have for you in the outline that's inserted in your program that we have Christmas indeed because God is on this mission. And we know that Luke chapter 15 is about this mission that God has commissioned for Himself because Luke 15 is sandwiched between Luke chapter 5 and verse 30 and Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. In Luke 5 and verse 30, Jesus said, it is not the well who need a physician, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners, Luke chapter 5. And then in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, similarly, Jesus says, The Son of Man, I, have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, why is he seeking those who are lost? Because he's in relentless pursuit of the execution of the plan of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in eternity past. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives three stories, three parables, three illustrations. That's what a, a parable is. The word parable means 
something that you bring alongside to make a connection, to make an association. And so Jesus tells these three parables in Luke 15 of three lost things. He mentions in Luke 15 a lost sheep. Many of you know the story. There was a shepherd who had a hundred sheep, and one of those 100 sheep wandered from the fold and the shepherd left the 99 and he went and sought the one who was lost. And when he found him, he put that sheep over his shoulder and brought him back into the fold, a lost sheep that is sought. And then Jesus gives the parable of a lost coin, a valuable coin that has, has been lost by one who needs it desperately. And when it is found, there's great rejoicing, not only on earth, but in heaven as well. When one sinner comes to repentance, Jesus says. And then he gives a third lost thing in an extended portion, beginning in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15, of a lost son. And this parable that we call the prodigal son is a mirror for every human heart and every human conscience. It is, according to Charles Dickens, who wrote A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens said it is the greatest story ever told. This one in verses 11 through 32 of Luke chapter 15. We're going to focus in on Jesus' parable of seeking this lost son, this prodigal. I'll tell you what prodigal means and why we call it that in just a bit. My friends, hear this. We often seek something lost, and we hope that we find it. We hope that we find that lost sheep. We hope that we find that lost coin. Whatever possession, whatever thing is lost to us, we seek it and we hope that we'll find it. But God always finds the ones he seeks. He always finds those he seeks. And the Bible says there is no one who seeks God. No, not one. But I, the Son of Man, Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. And we see that in his marvelous parable of the lost son. We have Christmas because God is on a mission. We have Christmas as well because God is on a mission too, I say in your outline. To do that very thing, to seek and to save the lost. And notice just how desperate is this lost condition as we read beginning in verse 11 of Luke 15. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. This son makes an absolutely shameful request of his father. He is, in effect, saying to his father, I want what would otherwise come to me in my inheritance after you are gone. I want it now. Now, there was nothing exceptional about this young man being entitled to an inheritance. We see from the rest of the parable that he was the son of a wealthy father. We know he was wealthy. Because later in the parable, he has a fatted calf to kill. Only wealthy people had that. He has a robe and he has sandals and a ring to put upon this young man. He has hired servants 
His father's a wealthy man. The man has two sons, and this is the younger of the two sons, and the younger son is going to be entitled to one-third of his father's estate when his father dies. The older son will be entitled to two-thirds. That was the law in Israel. So there was nothing unusual about him being entitled to an inheritance. Indeed, he was. But it was the worst dishonor to say, I want my inheritance. I want my portion now. It's saying, in effect, Dad, I wish you were dead. A great dishonor to his father. This young man was to live as a Jewish young man under the commandments God had given, one of which was the fifth of the ten, honor your father and your mother. And he existed in what's called an honor culture. Some of you know that in the Middle East there are things called honor killings when the name of a family is disgraced. And this young man, just with this request, has disgraced his father. He asks, not just for his inheritance early, indicating that it would be just fine with him if his father were not even alive, but he's also indicating that he wants the father's gifts without wanting the father. Begin to see yourself, and I begin to see myself, in the portrait of this young man. Because how many times do we want the Father's gifts more than we want the Father? Fix it, God. I'll do what you tell me to do if you'll fix it. And then when it gets better, I don't need that anymore. I'll call on you next time I'm in trouble. But not only does he do that, but he the Bible tells us this in verse 12. He, the father, divided his property between them. And the word for property in that verse is bios. We get biology. It means life from that word. And so when it says he divided his property, he's, he's dividing his life. Now, how can your property be tied up with your life? Well, if you just do a cursory reading of the first part of your Bible, you know that indeed... The land was inextricably tied to the life of the people. Do not take me, David prayed, out of the land of the living. God had promised land to his people. And this man was probably involved in real estate. That's how he apparently made his wealth. And so he has land holdings. And his life and his livelihood are tied up into this. And so when the son says, give me my share of the estate... And his property is divided to give him his third. It means the son took a part of his father with him. Great disgrace. Great humiliation. Great dishonor. And he takes a part of his father's life with this shameful request. And the expected response would have been in that day and in that culture a slap across the face publicly to this young man who's dishonored his father. You say, wow, that's harsh. Well, remember in the Old Testament, a disobedient, incorrigible child could actually be stoned to death. Some of you parents have thought about that. But a disgrace, a a slap across the face, so serious was this, that you have this in verse number 24, The father saying, 
this son has been dead to me. That's how serious is this break. This young man engages in an absolutely shameful request. And further, he engages in an absolutely shameful lifestyle. The Bible tells us, verse 13, not long after that, the son got together all he had. Now what it says, not many days after, not long after, he gathered all together. It means he liquidated his assets. His father has gone through the trouble now of giving this young man his third, and this young man has now liquidated the property. And he's done so quickly. Not long after the father does this, this rebellious son takes what his father has given, liquidates, so he now has cash to go and do what he wants. Verse 13 says the younger son got together all he had. He liquidated And he set off to a distant country. To set off to a distant country would mean this Jewish boy was now going to go to a Gentile land. And so the shame and disgrace gets worse. I wish you were dead, Father. I don't care about you. I care about your stuff. Give me my stuff. He liquidates it. He now goes and moves to Gentile country. He says, in effect, to his father, drop dead. He takes his loot, and he moves. It would be similar to moving from Bloomfield to Vegas. And here's what the Bible tells us in verse 13. And there, he squandered his wealth in wild living. Squandered, that word squandered means literally scattered abroad. He just threw this money around. Here came a kid rolling into town who had a bankroll, and he's throwing it around on everyone and everything. That everyone and everything included the living that goes with Gentile country, Vegas as it were. And so in verse 30, his older brother says to the father, he spent his, squandered his money, On things like prostitutes, undoubtedly. He engaged in such wild living. This is where we get the word prodigal from. This is why this is called the story, the parable of the prodigal. Because that word that's translated in verse 13, wild living, is prodigal living. Prodigal means extravagant Reckless. We get the idea of recklessness because he did not reckon. He did not, the word means count. And so he does not consider, he does not count, he does not reckon. And so he is reckless in what he does and how he spends what his father has giving, given him. How much did he spend? Verse 14. He spent everything. So here this kid is, having dishonored his father in a public way. Most are saying in that culture to this father, teach that kid a lesson. And yet the father doesn't respond as expected. And he gives the child what he requests. And the child goes off 
And he lives in this extravagant, prodigal, recklessly extravagant lifestyle. And he spent everything. And then verse 14 tells us, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. A severe famine. You and I know absolutely nothing of a famine at all, let alone a severe famine. We are living right now in the worst economic times of my lifetime and your lifetime. And yet, friends, we would be considered rich by the standards of that day, even in this difficult time. We know nothing of a famine, let alone a severe famine. A severe famine is the kind of thing that drove Abraham in the Old Testament from his home. It drove Jacob and his family into Egypt. That's the reason the book of Genesis tells us that Jacob's family and Joseph were in Egypt and the the Jews, the Hebrews, were there to be exodus, to be exited, led by Moses, all because they had originally gone there because of a severe famine. They had to leave their country and go to a place they absolutely did not want to go. It's in biblical times, but even in more recent times, severe famines are things like the potato famine in Ireland, where 10% of the population, one in every 10 people, died of starvation. It's gross to just consider how severe some famines are and what people are reduced to in those economic circumstances. I will just say this. There have been many times in history where folks have been reduced to even cannibalism because they're so hungry. And for the first time in this young man's life, he is in need and he is in serious need. He has squandered what he should not have taken to begin with on wild living. And now the economy is such that it is unlikely that he'll be able to find any job. And if he can find a job, it will not be something that will support him anything close to what he's been accustomed to. Verse 14 says he began to be in need. So what does he do? He takes action. Verse 15. He went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields. He hired himself out. He goes and says, looking, begging for work now. And I want to become, and the word hired himself is the word for a hired hand, a hired servant. It's the word for a day worker who was below even a slave in that culture. Slaves had room and board. A day worker, a hired hand, was somebody who was hired for the day, paid for the day, and maybe you'll work tomorrow. When I was in Mexico a couple of summers ago, we saw day workers every day we were there. And they would gather out on the corner of a street and they hoped that a business owner would come and hire them just for the day. And that's what this young man is doing. He has now hired himself out. And someone takes him on. It says in verse 15, a citizen of that country. 
That word citizen means that this was a person of privilege and prestige who took this young man on because he had the means, but also because, and you don't see this in the English translation, when it says he hired himself, it's he sought to be a day worker, but attached himself, joined himself, some translations say, to this citizen who had this privilege and prestige. This young man has been reduced to begging and hanging around someone that he believes can help him. And undoubtedly, finally, this man gives him something to do just to get him off his back. And what does he give him to do? Verse 15, he sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Well, most of us here know nothing about pig farming. But even in the very best of circumstances, it is absolutely nasty work. But consider being a Jewish boy who has dishonored your father and gone to Gentile country and now you are reduced to working with pigs. Feeding the pigs. Of course, pigs were unclean animals, right? In the first part of your Bible. Pork forbidden to conscientious Jews. But that is what this young man has now been reduced to. Verse 16 tells us he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So now he is feeding these pigs. He is so hungry that he's looking at what these pigs are eating, and he's longing an intense desire for the food that they have. And these pods are carob pods. They are like roots out of a carob bush that would grow even in severe famine. No doubt there was a drought that caused this famine, but these things could grow, and so the pigs are being fed with these. But they're not even easily digestible for pigs, let alone for humans. But he has nothing, and he's looking at it, and he's longing for it. But no one gave him anything. Finally, verse 17 tells us, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's, notice, hired men have food to spare? His father had day workers, his father had servants and slaves, but his father did not treat his day workers the way everyone else did. Even his day workers of my father have food to spare, and I'm here starving to death. And I'm here of my own accord. I'm here because what I have done. I'm here because I have disrespected and dishonored my father, and I'm now away from my home in a foreign country. What do I do? Verse 17 says, he came to his senses. Literally, he came to himself. This young man was beside himself. And apparently God moved on the heart now of this young man to cause him to see the error of his way. Verse 18 he tells us his plan. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up, verse 20, and went to his father. Now, friends, just stop for a minute and think about what you would do 
with a son who has so disgraced you, brought shame upon your family, has told you to drop dead. Undoubtedly, you have not heard from him in the time that he's been gone. No cell phones, no easy communication. He's gone to a far country. And now he's going to come back to you. He has taken part of your life with him. He has liquidated a third of your assets. Everyone around you is telling you what you should do with this young man. I want you to notice God's lavish mercy on the undeserving. Beginning in verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father saw him? His father's looking for him. His father undoubtedly had gone out day after day to look and long for the return of his son. His father sees him and sees him a long way off because he's been looking. And verse 20 says, he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. Threw his arms around him. And kissed him. Now think about the condition this boy is in. His clothes are tattered. He reeks of where he has been. He has had no place to live except with the swine. He has made this journey. It's a minor miracle that he's made it back home. And his father sees him a long way off and does not do what everyone wanted him to do. Let that kid come to you. And let him bow down before you. And let him grovel before you. And let him do penance, as some would say, in order to receive forgiveness. But the father runs to him. And in running to him, and I wish I had time, but in running to him, he's actually protecting this boy. Because there are undoubtedly people who will do him harm in that village. He sees his son, and he's excited, and he also wants to protect him. He embraces him, and he throws his arms around his son. I can never read verse 20 without getting emotional. Because you know who the hero of this story is? It's not the younger son and his repentance and coming to himself. It is the father. A picture of the missionary and merciful heart of God the Father. And the son then had made his plan and now he's going to execute his plan. He had already rehearsed what he was going to say and now he starts to say it. In verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So make, he's going to give the whole speech. But he doesn't get to finish it. Because the father interrupts in verse 22. The father says to his servants, quick. Bring the best robe and put it on. And whose robe might be the best robe? That would be the father's robe. Get my robe. 
my best robe, and put it on the sun. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. All of these symbolizing that this son has been received fully back into the family of the father. And then there's a huge celebration. Fattened calf is killed. And he says, verse 23, let's have a feast and celebrate. A fattened calf would typically feed up to 200 people. They have a party. Why? Because, verse 24, my son was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Now, friends, this is a picture of the merciful missionary heart of our God and the reason we have Christmas. The Bible tells us of our God, You, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The Bible tells us the Lord, the Lord, is compassionate and gracious compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Micah asks, who is God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgressions? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You see, there are two prodigals in this story. The prodigal who was reckless, did not count, did not reckon what he was doing, and so extravagantly threw away what he had. But notice, the, the father is prodigal as well. The father is not, is not reckoning. He's not thinking about all this. All he cares about is my son who was dead is now alive. And so you have, in the words of one author, the prodigal God being illustrated here. So what did Jesus do? So that this story and his main point could come home to you and me on this Christmas 2009. This Jesus who told this story, the Bible tells us, fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus committed no sin. Jesus is holy and blameless and he's pure so that Jesus could do this. He could be part of this mission that goes to eternity past in which the Bible says God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting. Notice, not reckoning. Reckless. Not counting. Men's sins against them. And he, God, has committed to us this message of reconciliation. Come home to the Father. And the Father waits with open arms. He's committed that message to us. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then we give this summary, given this summary of the good news gospel message. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, the father in the story of the prodigal shattered every stereotype the culture normally associated with an important person. That young man was getting exactly what he deserved and in the mercy and grace of the father he received 
everything that he did not deserve. And that's the salvation that's offered to you on Christmas 2009. You can receive what you absolutely did not deserve. Jesus died to pay the penalty, and he was qualified to do that because he had no sin. He offers that free grace to you, free grace to you, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whatever has been done to you. The Father waits with open arms. And so what do we do? We're going to bow before the Lord. And you can receive the free gift of the merciful Father right now in this sacred moment when we bow. You're a sinner, as am I. A sinner not unlike this young man. You haven't done all that he's done. I haven't done all that he's done. But lurking in my heart are the same sorts of sinful desires. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Recognize that Jesus, in his love, gave himself to pay the penalty for your sin. Repent. Come to your senses as this young man did. And go to the Father's house. And you receive Jesus Christ and God promises the Father will receive you. And so we're going to pray. I encourage you to pray a prayer like this one. From your heart to God. And receive his gift on this Christmas 2009. Let's bow. Father, we thank you. For this story from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ that tells us why indeed we have Christmas. We thank you for the merciful missionary heart of our God. We thank you that because he planned in eternity past before anything had been created to give as a love gift to God the Son a people for his very own, because of that, The Son has come on a relentless mission to seek and to save those who were lost. And He always finds the one He is looking for. Having been found, our salvation is absolutely secure, going back to eternity past and extending into eternity future. Not because of what we have done. We thank You, Lord God, for the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who has wandered from God, as we all have. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, your word tells us, but has never come to the Father. I pray that right now, they are receiving the gift of mercy that the Father offers. I pray that there are angels rejoicing in heaven, because one sinner has come to repentance. We pray all of this to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.